Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Our text this evening is Joshua chapter 3 and 4, beginning on page 179 in your Pew Bible. It is the crossing of the Jordan by Joshua and the Israelites to enter the land of promise. Now, it may be some time since we've examined a passage in Joshua, so I thought it would be good to begin by underlining several themes that are found in the book and have a direct bearing on our text this evening. Now, the first two will be very familiar to you because we have encountered them before in our studies of Luke chapter 2 and the circumcision of Jesus, the throne visions of the Apostle John and Revelation, and in our study of the life of Abraham. Now, the first theme is this, one to write down. When God makes his covenant promise, he always keeps it. When God makes his covenant promise, he always keeps it. Now, we saw last Sunday how within the crisis of childlessness that dogged the life of Abram and Sarah, God made an irrevocable oath as a sign to Abram. He promises an heir and descendants that will possess specifically the land of Canaan, the place where up to this time, Abram has merely been a sojourner. The responsive sign of circumcision that is commanded 24 years later, God again swears that Abraham's offspring will possess the land of Abraham's sojourning, the land of Canaan. And in fulfillment of his timeline, God calls Moses. Seventy people or so emigrated to Egypt 430 years before, and now they are a large nation. So large that the Egyptians seek to enslave and then to destroy them. And God tells Moses from the depth of the burning bush, the time is up. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to rescue you and judge the Egyptians in mighty signs and wonders. And then I will bring you to Canaan. It's here for the first time that God describes the land of Canaan as a land flowing with milk and honey. And the phrase becomes an epithet for the next 40 years through the judgment of Egypt, the Red Sea crossing, and the years in wandering of the wilderness. The phrase becomes a metaphor because only royalty, kings, queens, princes, princesses, are fit to drink milk and consume honey. In other words, this land 
takes on a greater significance in the fulfillment of God's promise. It has now become a land fit for kings. And so Joshua and Israel stand at the door of the fulfillment of God's promise. That brings us to the second theme. The second theme is that God calls his people to covenant faithfulness. The people must be a people fit for such a land as this. They are no longer their own. They are God's people set aside for God himself. We saw how earlier the people were cut off from the family of fallen Adam and placed in a new family of the expected second Adam in the sign of circumcision. They are brought in this symbolic way into this new tribe within the covenant of God's promise. So we have a new people, a new relationship, and now a new land, a land of royalty. The inhabitants are all kings. The third theme is this. Joshua is God's specific instrument to guarantee that these promises are fulfilled. And the clue is in his name. Now, why the name? Well, we learned last time how the rite of circumcision was a rite of passage that cut away the foreskin of the male child, and that at that time they received the public naming. It was then the name, perhaps the only known by the couple up to this point, is made known to the family and to the community. And Joshua, son of Nun, is not the name he was given at circumcision. So we have to ask the question, where then did this happen? When did the son of Nun get this name? Well, we have to go to Numbers chapter 13. It's there when a representative from each tribe is appointed and sent to spy out the land of milk and honey at Kadesh Barnea. Verse 8 tells us the list of those spies. And the representative from the tribe of Ephraim was Hoshea, the son of Nun. Now, in the Hebrew, Hoshea means simply deliverer or salvation. But then Moses sees him, and he is the one who renames him Joshua. Yeshua, the Lord delivers. The Lord is Savior. Now we can see more of its significance. It anticipates what is to come. And this renaming reflects the pattern of the scriptures themselves because we have seen again and again how God alone asserts that he is the sole Savior of his people. Therefore, it's logical, isn't it, that it reaches its ultimate fulfillment 
in Jesus as the angel instructs Joseph. He is to be named Jesus, which is, of course, the Greek form of Yeshua, Joshua, Joshua bar Joseph, Joshua, son of Joseph. I would think that perhaps it is that Moses has a sense under the influence of the Holy Spirit of what God will do in Joshua's ministry. And so he uses him as an illustration of how God will work for the salvation of his people. And so, for you and me as believers, having known the Lord Jesus, we can see how God set the pattern in those days to give us an illustration of how God continues to work in his people, to fulfill his purposes in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, with these three themes in mind, let's consider more carefully our text this evening. As I've said, it is the great transition point of the book of Joshua. At this moment, Joshua and the people stand outside of the fulfillment of God's promise. Indeed, on the east side of the Jordan River. And the location is significant, isn't it? You may recall from our study of Genesis 1 through 11 when our first parents are driven from the presence of God in the garden, they have to move east, east of Eden, down into the low country. Indeed, Cain moves east, and it is from the east that one enters the tabernacle. In other words, all the blessings lie on the west side, the other side. So the people in Joshua are on the east. They are at the decision point, the crisis point. And this is very significant because the last time the children of Israel were on the boundary of the land, they failed. They stood at Kadesh Barnea and they heard the report of the spies. Fear gripped them. Forgetfulness of what God had done in Egypt and had promised Seize them. What will happen now? But here it gets fascinating right away. Because in 419 we read, the people come up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now why is that significant? Well, think about it for a moment. The children of Israel crossed on the same day, which 40 years before had been the Passover and the initial exodus from Egypt. There at the time of Passover again, at this decision point. And four days later, you can read in Joshua how they keep the Passover for the first time in the land of promise. So we have the first Passover and God's mighty signs and wonders and the exodus and the Red Sea on the one side as a bookend. The failed decision at Kanesh Barnea at its center. And at the other end, as that generation has died in the desert, another point of decision, another point of sign and wonder. And Passover 
The difference, of course, is that the generation that stood at the Jordan River have the wisdom of their failures. They have made their effect on the people, and they take this great step of faith. And so the narrative of the crossing itself acts, as it were, like a camera that pans across the scene, pausing from point to point and resting there for a time to make it crystal clear. It's as if God is saying, focus here. And there are four points of focus I would like you to consider this evening. The first one is the consecration of the people of God, the consecration of the people of God. It's there in chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Well, you could put it this way. In order to enter the land of royalty, of kings and princes, you must be royal to resemble your king. In order for you to enter into the blessings God is giving you, you must yield yourself to God in a fresh, decisive way. So we have this language again of separation, of consecration. And indeed, you are reflecting the glory of God. Signs and wonders will be revealed, just as it had been at the Exodus. God's glory will now be reflected in his people, in the testimony they make. Like a mirror taken away and cleaned after years of dust and dirt now shines more clearly. So what Joshua teaches us here is how the blessing of God can only be received by a people who have committed to follow him. Now, they also did this once before, didn't they? There's a similar example in Exodus 19 when the children of Israel reached Mount Sinai. There again, great signs and wonders as the glory and the presence of God descends upon the mountain. Before that happens, God commands the people through Moses to wash their clothes and abstain from sexual intimacy. I would suggest that is what Joshua also commands the people to do, even though it is not mentioned here. Now, why would I suggest that to you? Well, it's because of its focus. You see, to wash one's clothes is to bid the past goodbye, symbolically. To abstain from intimacy is to, again, affirm symbolically that ordinary life is no longer the same. No area of life, indeed, even at its most intimate, is outside of God's new covenant authority. We may recall for ourselves in our study of Luke's gospel how the Lord Jesus commanded the disciples in a similar way, didn't he? To reject the past, and to yield to what is most precious, to give up their family, father and mother. We should also notice that the consecration does not qualify you for the blessing, but it is a necessary response to enter into 
the blessing. There is no way in without consecration. This is central to the scriptures and must not be missed. Indeed, as I have said, even our Savior himself affirms it. Paul does as well in his letters, doesn't he? As he describes the nature of the Christian life. Reject the past. Give up what is most precious to you as a response to what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So first, the consecration of the people. Second, the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. We heard in verse 6, he says to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. And we can see, can't we, in Joshua 3, how there's this repetition of the Ark's movements and pause throughout this crossing from 3 to 4. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's the Ark of the Covenant is a wooden chest covered in purest gold with a lid called a mercy seat upon which two cherubim have been fashioned. Angels who attend God's throne are placed there, and that's the key, you see, because they represent the footstool of God's throne here on earth, a physical symbol of God's presence and his power and his purpose. But notice, they are not to get too close, but they are to look and observe where the ark moves. Indeed, Joshua orders the priests to pass before the people so that every person will see it. They are to keep it in view. When it moves, you move. And so just like a miniature Red Sea crossing, the waters of the Jordan flee from God's presence even when in full flood of springtime. At the Red Sea, God's presence is experienced in the whirlwind of his judgment as the waters once more flee from his presence until they close in upon the chariots of the Egyptians. Indeed, just like our first parents fled his presence when the whirlwind of God's judgment sought them in the garden. And so later, when the ark leads the children of Israel around Jericho, the seventh time, for seven times, the whirlwind of horns and their shout caused the very stones to flee from their foundation, and the city falls. Now the ark of the covenant, where the blood of atonement was shed on the mercy seat above, and the tables of God's law were kept within, also point forward, don't they, to the true ark, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who kept God's law perfectly in thought, word, and deed, and whose shed blood covered the sins of his people. And so in that same way, you and I, don't we, as believers, keep our eyes on Jesus, the true ark. He is the author, the finisher of our salvation. As Hebrews 12, 1 tells us, we lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us, and we look to Jesus. He crossed condemnation and death to enter into life and salvation, seated now, at God's right hand. And so we keep our eyes on him. 
The third one is the exaltation of the servant of God. It's in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. In the same way, in 14, we read that on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua with the result that for the rest of his life, they were in awe of him, just as they had been in awe of Moses. This, in a way, is unexpected. We know that the command and the narrative keeps all eyes on God and his glory, doesn't it? So why in the world would God make this point of exalting a human being? It's because, my dear friends, Joshua, as I have said, is a working model, an illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, follow him through the valley of death. Here it is the Jordan, later the cross and tomb. Be exalted with him in the conquering of Canaan, conquering sin and death. So let's consider for a moment what would be Joshua's humiliation. There is humiliation for exaltation, isn't there? So what are we talking about? Once again, we've got to go back 40 years to Joshua's renaming and his commissioning. You may recall how he joins Caleb of the tribe of Judah and the other ten spies who spy out the land. There is a mixed report when they return, isn't there? Yes, the land indeed flows with milk and honey, suitable for kings. Here's a sample, plump grapes, pomegranates, figs. But they're told the people who live there are strong. They live in fortified cities. They have elite warriors, mercenaries, in their armies. We would be like midgets, grasshoppers alongside them. Panic sweeps through the people. They cry out through the long night, we should have died in Egypt. Or on the way here to see this day, the Lord has brought us here to kill us, our wives, our little ones. Let's choose another leader and return to Egypt. And the next morning, as they confront Moses and Aaron, the two Older men fall in supplication before these representatives of the people, and the mob is shouting for their deaths. It's at this point that Joshua and Caleb step up. They tear their clothes in grief, and they make a passionate plea. The Lord delights in us. The Lord leads us. Trust in him, and he will certainly lead us into this land and give it to us. Don't fear these people. God's hand of protection is withdrawn from them. We will easily triumph over them. And what is the result? The people pick up stones to stone them to death, shouting that they should die. Now here's the thing. The little ones that are mentioned in the text that day would have witnessed Joshua's humiliation. It's their parents who died in the desert, not them. And they are the adults now. And they have seen that he is indeed Joshua. The Lord is salvation. Have you ever noticed how there is that connection between the respect he is given and the blessing of God's people? It's a great principle of the scriptures, isn't it? 
when those who lead are not given respect, then the people cannot receive spiritual blessing. There's a proportionality in that that you see in the New Testament scriptures as well. That the blessing received in the fellowship of God's people is directly affected by the respect they accord their leaders. It's a pattern that binds God's people together. And the fourth thing is the construction of a memorial. It's in Joshua 4. And he says, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. And then the great point in verse 6, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? You can tell them the story of what happened. Joshua instructs them to tell their children what God did that day. The Lord God of Joshua. The permanent reminder that what the Lord did so convincingly that day, the Lord may well do again. Do you see the echoes here of Passover? The youngest is to ask, why are we celebrating this night the way we are? And they are told the story. Here, if they see the stones, they ask the same question, and they are told the story. You know, this whole point of how God has worked, and he, he may well do again, I think every believer has. Indeed, every believer has monuments like this, don't you think? Okay, perhaps not standing stones at a river's bank but a reminder that gives them the boldness to say, oh, Lord, do it again. I mean, what are your standing stones? Perhaps it's where you met God for the first time. You come upon it, you know, a token in your personal Bible that reminds you from the time that you came to Christ. Or perhaps it's a day on the calendar a specific passage of scripture that you read once again year after year in your Bible reading plan. And you notice the verses underlined or highlighted, and there's a note in the margin that you left. And that great hope and prayer. Oh, Lord, do it again. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.